Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. We continue tonight in our series from Revelation, uh, the first couple chapters of the last book of the Bible. And uh, we pick up with uh, the second church, uh, having looked at Ephesus and now Smyrna. And uh, these two chief cities were rivals uh, in the ancient world, uh, competing for greatness status uh, in Asia Minor. In fact, Smyrna had a reputation for being uh, very faithful and loyal to Rome, uh, one of Rome's favorites. And it's interesting that the church of Smyrna also is characterized by faithfulness and loyalty to Christ. And it's, I believe, the only church that does not get uh, rebuke or correction uh, from the Lord uh, among the seven churches. But these uh, competing loyalties between the city and the church uh, will rise to to conflict and eventually severe oppression and trials and persecution become the affliction of the saints but the Lord promises for those who are found faithful he will give the crown of life so those of us who have may we have ears to hear what the spirit has to say to the churches revelation 2 beginning in verse 8 And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Our gracious God and Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Tower of London has a fascinating history. It's really a magnificent fortress, and in its history has oftentimes served as a prison in housing and executing some of England's most famous prisoners, William Wallace, Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell. Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII, was beheaded there. Lady Jane Grey found the same fate under the tyranny of Bloody Mary. But today, uh, the Tower of London is most famous for and and frequently visited by those who want to see the royal family's crown jewels. And we will likely in coming years see those jewels come out for a coronation when Queen Elizabeth's reign uh, comes to an end. The Tower of London, a house to prisoners and the crown jewels, is a fitting image in my mind for the Church of Smyrna and the persecuted church at large. After having survived stoning at the hands of the Jews, Paul and Barnabas in the cities of Lystra and nearby cities 
press on to strengthen the disciples, to encourage them to continue in their faith, telling them that's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And so this word of encouragement to the church at Smyrna offers to us today affirmation, consolation, exhortation, and confirmation. This vision to John opens with the words of affirmation as the Lord speaks of the, the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. These words of assurance comes from him who is both eternal and unconquerable. The Lord Jesus Christ is uncreated, the eternally begotten Son of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and who is to come without beginning and to no end. His rule, his wisdom and power have no limits. Every kingdom in the history of man has been temporary. Common among the ancient servants would address their ruler with the words, O king, live forever! A petition made in vain, as all those rulers died and their kingdoms came to an end. But the angel Gabriel said these things to Mary, that her son Jesus would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. It was established before the foundations of the world. And it echoes what Psalm 145 reveals. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now Jesus is eternal because he is unconquerable. Now through his three year or so itinerant ministry, Jesus seemed unstoppable. The demons could not stop him, but were cast out by him from those whom they tormented. The devil could not stop him, though tempted Jesus three times in the wilderness. The religious rulers could not stop him, though they tried to trap him with trick questions. But then Satan entered Judas, who conspired with the authorities, and they caught him. Under cover of darkness, the light of the world was subject to a kangaroo court. Under false pretenses and lying, the way, the truth, and the life was convicted on trumped-up charges. By whip and scourge and the cross, the author of life met his death at the hands of wicked men. The unstoppable was stopped. The one who pursued people with an unquenchable passion was quenched, his fire snuffed out. But then, three days later, the unconquerable rose again. Death could not keep its hold on him. The grave could not contain him. The natural course of decay was reversed. He lives. And so we need no longer fear death. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The death of death and the death of Christ means that his people live forever. And when we affirm these truths, it grounds our hope and our courage to endure all that may lay ahead in the valley of the shadow of death. There are many pits in this valley. They're called cancer, broken dreams, broken relationships, economic 
hardships, the loss of children and loved ones. But each of these pits are temporary. And we find consolation in the Lord and strength to overcome. Verse 9 offers a few words of consolation as the Lord tells his church, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. This church will face great suffering, but these things are not unknown to the Lord. He is not blind or uncaring to their plight. He is the God who sees, the God who hears, who identifies with the trials of his people. It's apparent that these believers were being thrown out of their employments because of their conversions. Economic oppression was, has always been a common tactic by the worldlings who would bully God's people to press them to comply with social order. The city of Smyrna's loyalty was to Rome and to her emperor. But the Christian's loyalty was to a dead Jewish man whom they claimed to be alive and the true king of the world. They would be marginalized, suffer sanctions, be cut off from promotions and advancements in commerce. These little Christ would heed the will of the world or suffer the consequences. Such similar conditions were endured by believers behind the Iron Curtain of the 20th century, living in Soviet Union, living in Eastern Europe, under Marxist communistic regimes who would tolerate no rivals to the state. We see similar patterns in China today. And you and I need wisdom in our day. As various voices would clamor for unchecked power, silence the freedom of Christians to have a voice in society, to deny even livelihood to bow before a godless agenda. May we be diligent to use our influence to preserve Judeo-Christian values for the good of society. Even while learning from our forefathers and from our brothers and sisters from around the world who have endured hardship and even thrive spiritually, flourishing even when they are greatly hindered by authorities who cannot tolerate faith in Jesus Christ. Not only would they suffer poverty, the people of Smyrna would suffer slander from God's people, the Jews. It's likely that the Jews had chosen Smyrna as a place of residence because it was a strong city of commerce. The Jews enjoyed protections from Rome, and it's understood that Christians may have enjoyed that same privilege for a time under the umbrella of the Jewish faith. But in time, Jews would vindictively seek to remove those protections that Christians may suffer oppression from the Roman state. We see this in the book of Acts with the Jews rejecting the Christian gospel, attacking Paul and his colleagues, the apostles and the disciples bringing bad reports to the rulers, seeking even to put them to death. It was to such false men and women that Jesus called not children of Abraham, but children of the devil. And their synagogues were not houses of worshiping the true God, but mere synagogues of Satan, as our text condemns. Satan 
is the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. And likewise, such false men slander and malign the followers of Jesus to the governing authorities. Now, it's not likely, but it's possible that Polycarp, the church father, was bishop of Smyrna at this time. Polycarp was a pupil of the Apostle John, who, after a long life, would be martyred in 155 A.D. Near the end of his life, he was arrested. He was commanded to renounce his faith, to confess that Caesar is Lord. Polycarp boldly and courageously refused. Then he was brought into the stadium, where the proconsul urged him to swear to swear to renounce Christ. Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When pressed further by the proconsul, Polycarp replied, Since thou art vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. The proconsul proceeded to threaten Polycarp with wild beasts, to even be consumed by fire unless he repent. And Polycarp's final words said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarry? Bring forth what you will. And Polycarp was promptly burned at the stake. You know, there's nothing comforting or glamorous about poverty, slander, or martyrdom. The consolation for the saints come to us when we remember that God is with us in trial. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. He is the God who is with us. In the fires of affliction, he is Emmanuel, the Son, the only Son of the Father, who was not spared but subjected to poverty, slander, torture, and death. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And you and I will never face anything that our suffering Savior was not willing to endure himself. And martyrs like Polycarp give us courage and strength to face our own evil days. To not give way to fear, but to live with living hope that the Lord keeps his promises and rewards those who trust in him. And so what follows remain in our text are three exhortations and two confirmations. The first exhortation is do not fear. The most frequent command in scripture, one for every day of the year. And the Lord wants the people not to fear as they anticipate the trials to come. He reveals to them that the devil will throw some of them into prison to be tested and will suffer tribulation for ten days. Do not fear. We have much to fear in a fallen world, 
We live in a society where we are losing social, political, and economic capital in a culture that's determined to spread the false religion of personal identity and entitlement, rejecting biblical standards, and with no tolerance for dissent. David had much to fear as he was on the run from the madness of King Saul. Even after he rose from the throne, he was surrounded by enemies and even enemies from within when he had to face the coup of his own son. And yet David could write in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Isaiah goes on to write, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The second exhortation is to be faithful unto death. Death is a very real and present danger for believers throughout the world. In a recent newsletter from one of our missionaries, we learned that the mother of this missionary recently died in North Africa. And this missionary had years ago led his mother and many of his family to Christ, converting from Islam. And his mother's death was a beautiful testimony to the gospel. And yet aroused the hostility of the surrounding community when the family refused to give her a Muslim burial. She being one of the first Christians to die in that region and to be buried. The Muslim neighbors threatened the family, even while grieving the loss of their dear mother. They beat the missionary's brother, nearly blinding him in one of his eyes, requiring surgery to restore it. We here in the West do not yet face such physical threats, but the Lord would call us to identify with our brothers and sisters, to pray and to advocate on their behalf, to be faithful unto death until we die, or even faithful unto death, meaning death to self. In a day and age when we may be tempted to self-centeredness, we are called to put to death our sin, our selfishness, to not let it to fester and to grow, to entrap us, to ruin our witness or dishonor our Lord. And the third exhortation is to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our problem today is too much noise. Too much noise and not enough quiet to listen to the word and the spirit. Even when we are quiet, our minds can be noisy and busy with plans and reflections. I urge us to make time to be quiet. To be alone with God in prayer for reflection, meditation, and listening to the spirit. So think about this exhortation of the churches to hear the Spirit of the Lord. If only pastors and leaders and churches in America have been faithful to hear the Spirit, to preach exercise discipline over the last two centuries, perhaps there would have been no Roe v. Wade to even overturn. There would not have been needed a civil rights movement because the church was embracing and celebrating all races to be honored and to be respected. Imagine if all of God's people were listening to the Spirit. How about my preserve families, strengthen marriages, preserve the innocence of children, 
and make great grounds and progress in our cultural wars on drugs and mental health and trafficking travesties. May the Lord grant revival and a hunger to, and ears to hear the word of God. And finally, two confirmations, two promises from the Lord. The Lord says, to those who prove faithful, the Lord promises to give the crown of life. Now, this was not the royal crown. Rather, this was the laurel wreath, one that was awarded to the victor competing in the games. You and I are promised the victor's crown, a symbol of honor to those who finish well, living a life, overcoming sin, living by faith, despite all of our doubts, obstacles, and trials. And it's our reward. The compelling vision of Scripture is that you and I will one day stand before the king to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And secondly, we are promised that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what is the second death? Well, everyone experiences the first death, unless you're alive when Christ returns. The first death, of course, is the natural death that are the consequences of man's sin, the curse that God bestowed upon the earth in response to our parents' rebellion. For believers, death is the gateway into everlasting life. We need not fear it because we know what lies beyond it. Ours is the hope of abundant life and eternal glory in the presence of God forever. But not so the wicked, whom after the first death may enter a second death, one of misery without end, a punishment with no relief. Recently, while my parents were, were visiting for a graduation, I picked up the book my father was reading, Imagine Heaven by John Burke. Now, I'm not a big fan of books that chronicle near-death experiences and the testimony of those who are technically, clinically dead for a time for minutes or hours before life-saving technologies bring them back to life. But I was intrigued, and I read a few chapters, and I was surprised of the integrity of this author to not only paint everything in terms of heaven, but to even have a chapter, What About Hell?, Hell is not a popular topic and virtually non-existent across pulpits in America and at funerals where everyone goes to heaven. But the author Burke had the integrity to confirm the hellish experiences of people who were clinically dead and had reports of unimaginable horror, misery, cruelty, and darkness, giving in painful detail. And Burke contends that that experience is more common and oftentimes goes unreported because of fear, trauma, and the shame that people who experience uh, such hellish details. Perhaps more and more people will wake up to the reality of the second death that is coming. But those of us who are in Christ will not taste the second death but rather receive the crown of life and live forever with him. And our confidence is not in reports of those who 
were dead for a brief time. Rather, our confidence comes from the infallible word of God and the promises of the one who conquered sin and death. Enter by way of the gate. Keep to the narrow path that leads to life. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And he will give you grace to endure, to enable you to pray, to hold fast to his promises, to enter into the glory of his presence, into a world free from sin, an eternal kingdom of light, love, peace, and joy with God and all the saints. Let us pray. Father, we're so grateful for the heavenly vision, for the hope that is ours in Christ, for the testimony of your spirit in the word, the lessons you gave to the people of Smyrna so long ago that we need to hear today, and I pray that you give us grace to endure trials and hardship and suffering. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author of life, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.